This podcast was originally the audio for a work of the same name for the Nearly On Red YouTube channel, found at youtube.com slash c slash nearly on red. Though not intended to be a standalone podcast, viewers frequently consume my videos for their audio content only, so I have duplicated my work in this format to hopefully save people a step. A full list of content and platforms can be found at nearlyonred.com or the short link nearly.red, N-E-A-R-L-Y dot R-E-D. Enjoy! Hi guys, it's Theta, Episode 5 the Not Quite Daily Show, talking about Episode 5 of Made in Abyss. As promised last time, we're going to start trying what I call a short look at these episodes, where instead of going scene by scene as we did before, talking about our five main elements, we're simply going to treat the entire episode as basically one long scene and talk about the highlights in each category. To make this easier, we're going to perform a little bit of housekeeping on our categories. Today we're mostly going to clean up our goals and conflicts categories, and next episode we're going to talk about themes. Now I'll talk more about that when we actually get to the theme part of this episode. For goals and conflicts, what I've basically done is list all the ones we've mentioned before that are still ongoing, grouping them into some categories and subcategories, and then during each installment of this show, we'll talk about which goals and conflicts are actually touched upon in that episode, tracking where they began the episode and where they ended up by the end. We'll also mention any new ones that show up, as well as any whose conditions have been met and need to be removed. Another minor bit of housekeeping I want to address concerns some of the comments people have made on YouTube videos. First of all, I absolutely love reading them. Um, I try to respond to a lot of them. I'm still gonna respond to some more. But something that's come up a couple times is asking me if I'm caught up on the show or not. Now this won't necessarily be obvious if you're watching the show in the future, but my show is out of sync with the actual Made in Abyss show. The actual broadcast of this is many weeks ahead of where I am. Now that doesn't necessarily matter except that I spend the end of every one of my episodes doing speculation. And so a kind of logical question is, do you actually know where this is going when you're doing the speculating? So to clear that up, the answer is no. I don't watch an episode until I've finished this show for the episode I'm reviewing. Literally when I start to render this show, I will watch the next episode. This makes for a kind of odd situation where a lot of people watching the show know more about it than I do. They're probably watching the speculation going, oh, you know, that, that actually turned out to be true, or, wow, you're way off. But I won't know this for several weeks. The only reason I bring this up is, maybe not after this episode, but the next one of these I do, will probably come after the actual finale to the show. Now, because I want to keep my opinions pure, I'm going to start avoiding the comments on my YouTube channels until I catch up with the show. And the reason is I don't want to be spoiled. I don't want anything to taint my speculation or the way I'm looking at elements as it's going, because in future seasons, I want to follow shows week by week after they broadcast, and it does no good to practice this whole format if I'm just going to cheat and look ahead so I know it's coming. So starting not with this episode, but probably the next one of my show, I'm going to sort of be ignoring comments for a while because of the risk of spoilers. I already had to stop participating in various forums because of the risk of being spoiled, so I don't like that much either. I've learned my lesson about being behind on a show, for sure. Just know that I'm not ignoring people going forward because I don't like you, because I don't want to interact with you, but because I really want to be honest about my speculation. All right then, let's go to the show.
So like I said, we're doing a little bit of goals and conflicts housekeeping. Goals, as I mentioned way back at the beginning, always belong to characters. They are the things that drive characters and therefore sort of drive the story. So you can see on the board here, all of the goals belong to a character. Now, the only real housekeeping I've done here is I've sort of made sub goals. Specifically, I've given Rico a new goal of conquer abyss, which includes her other goals of becoming a white whistle, reaching the bottom of the abyss, and the goal introduced this episode, which is to become renowned for her exploration, for her notes, for conquering the abyss. Unknown goals I have brought up before, they do go on here because we presumably will discover them at some point. Lizas and regs, the ones we've talked about before, I went ahead and added one for leader also, because if we do assume that he's the one who puts the copy of Liza's notes and the little letter in Reg's backpack, then I think we still want to see what it is he hoped to accomplish with that. What was his goal? So then, what kind of goal progression do we actually have in this episode? Well, one of our main big driving goals for Rico is to reach the bottom of the abyss. Now, a lot of other goals will presumably be met on the way. This one's still a very big driver of plot. We like to see a little bit of progress in it every episode. Gives us a sense of the story moving forward. We started this episode at the very top of the second layer, and we ended it at what I think must be the bottom, or at least very close to the bottom, uh, at the Seeker camp. So it's kind of like our progress looks something like this. Gone through the first layer, and now we're most of the way through the second layer. Obviously a lot can happen, and we may not even ever need to go to the bottom to advance a lot of these other goals, but this right now is sort of our major gauge of where we are in the story. Getting to the secret camp will also meet Rico's goal of finding Ozen. Pretty straightforward, actually. We knew where she was. I think it was obvious from last episode that that meeting is not going to go the way she envisions, but we'll find that out next time. We also have a little bit of advancement with Rico and Reg's sort of shared goal of discovering more about Reg and his past, and that comes in the scene with the use of his little hand beam that Rico names his incinerator. While we don't get full details or any kind of complete picture, the fact that he's able to use it at all without really remembering who he is or where he came from tells us that there's a kind of muscle memory to the way he works. I mean, we already kind of had a sense of that with his extendable hands and how he got better at that early on. This is just a little confirmation that we're going to discover little bits and pieces of Reg as we go along. Probably just a little bit here and there every episode, we'll get more and more of a complete picture of exactly what Reg is. Is. The whole scene with the incinerator actually addresses another kind of ongoing goal, which is Reg's goal of protecting Rico. Now this is not a goal he can probably meet. It's the kind of thing that's going to be a goal as long as they're both in the story, unless he just gives up on protecting her. But since it absolutely motivates him and drives a lot of his actions, it stays as a goal because we see it crop up a lot, including here in the incinerator. Now we'll talk more about it in characterization. This episode really is very heavy on characterization. But this is a goal of his that may lead him to make some hard choices in the future. The incinerator saves Rico from being eaten, but it comes with sort of this terrible realization, this terrible possible side effect, that rather than protecting Rico, Reg very nearly killed her himself. Finally, we're gonna add a new goal to the list. This comes up when Rico is bemoaning the loss of her little notebook because she admits she kind of had a fantasy of it being found deep, deep in the abyss and having it serve as proof of how far she'd gone and all the things she'd seen. Basically, I think she was hoping that one day her little journal would get the same sort of treatments that her mother's notes did when they showed up. It was a very big deal and it was all new information and very exciting stuff. But as Rico is talking about all of this, you realize she wants to be famous or she wants some renown as a cave raider. So this isn't necessarily all about becoming worthy of the abyss or finding her mother or following in her footsteps in just a sense of wanting to be a white whistle. Rico wants it all. She wants to be the sort of folk hero that her mother is. And renown is part of that equation. This may mean that she will do some rash things 
because they would win her some fame or they would be impressive to people back home. This may direct her actions in the future. So as far as conflicts go, I've done a similar thing where I've grouped them and reorganized them a little bit. Mainly I've broken them into two categories, conflicts which concern sort of above the abyss, the surface world that we've kind of left for now, and then all the conflicts that still sort of press on them will still be a thing they're dealing with in the abyss itself. Now, I don't actually think we're done with the surface world. I don't know in what means it will come back into the story, but it's hard for me to believe that three episodes worth of development up there will never be visited again. And so while we have some sort of surface conflicts hanging over our head, <laughs> Um, we don't really have to worry about them in the immediate future because they are not going to concern them while they're in the abyss And that's why I've sort of separated them out So this list here is sort of the existing conflicts we've talked about in the past that we think are still ongoing We'll talk about the ones that come up or at least are addressed in this episode now We do have a new conflict and just like our new goal It's also related to the scene in which Rico discovers she's lost her notebook And that scene lets us know that Rico actually was kind of relying on that as a source of information It's part of the reason she knows a lot of the things she knows about what they're encountering in the abyss Losing that means that they're now going into things even more blindly than they were before, which was already pretty blindly. That same scene contains another reference to our missing star compass. Like, if we didn't know this thing was important by now, here's just one more way to highlight that, hey, this thing is still gonna show up in the story. I told you last time I'm counting it as a conflict because I do think it's gonna come back into the story in some way that presents a difficulty for them because I think someone else is going to find it or they're going to make some kind of decision based on getting it back into their possession. So the loss of it's a conflict, mentioning it again just helps us remember that it's still ongoing. The very final scene when they do come to the secret camp and they sort of meet Ozen for the first time moves a couple other conflicts forward. Habo had given them a warning about Ozen Rico had largely ignored it because of her curiosity about this person. And while it's a very brief interaction, Ozen does not seem like she's the most friendly person, at least not to Rico and Reg. What exactly the nature of that conflict will be, we'll see next episode, but this shows that Hava wasn't completely just making things up. Additionally, though they seem to have forgotten it, Rico and Reg are kind of fugitives. They went to the abyss without permission. They left the orphanage without permission. They're red whistles and they aren't supposed to be down this far. And I'm sure the guild or other authorities would like them returned for a variety of reasons. And everything we know right now suggests that Ozen is part of those authorities. She is obviously on good terms with the guild, exists within their power and influence structure. I'm not sure why they're not expecting just to be caught and returned immediately to the surface once they get to the seeker camp. Now though, Reg's arms are caught at the very least and they can't just run away. So characterizations I think suffers a little bit from the shorter look, the different format. So to aid that, what I've done is break our characterization analysis down into things which confirm or sort of reaffirm the characterizations we already associate with these characters, and then talk about any new aspects of their characters or something about them that is evolving in its own section. Now, I've listed these characterizations out in sort of just semicolon separated list form here, but we'll go over them in brief. Reg, in the beginning, immediately rushes to the cries of help he hears. We already know he has very strong protective instincts. He once again sort of blushes and gets a little embarrassed and bashful about uh, Rico's nakedness, even though she's completely nonplussed. The scene when Rico is being carried off by the corpse sweeper and Reg's racking his brain to figure out what he can do shows us that his need to protect Rico is paramount. He's not even thinking about the material danger to himself. He doesn't even seem to notice that he is being attacked. 
Granted, I know he's very hardy, but the thought doesn't even seem to cross his mind. It's all about what can I do to save Rico. Then there's the scene where they're eating the corpse sweeper meat. I'll come back to that scene in a minute. But the fact that they eat people and eating the meat makes him uncomfortable reminds us that he kind of sees himself as human. He has very human actions and human empathy for someone who is not a human. He basically doesn't see himself as an other compared to Rico, compared to the other cave raiders and people he knows. Finally then, as they approach the secret camp, he once again shows his sort of cold, deductive logic when he guesses that the people inside would be very wary of a red whistle and a robot approaching, and this might explain why the gondola was not coming down as Rico expected. Rico also had a lot of moments of staying in character. She recklessly puts herself in harm's way to keep Reg from being snatched by the corpse sweeper. This is very similar to what she did in the very first episode, where she attracted the Crimson Splitjaw's attention away from Nato. She does these sort of things instinctively without really thinking about the danger to herself. Especially silly, since if Reg had been the one picked up, it probably would have been just fine. She also doesn't even seem to notice when Reg is embarrassed or blushing about things. In fact, she's not embarrassed at all at her own nakedness. I want to tangent just briefly on this. Way back in the very first video I made, not part of this Made in Abyss series, but the very first one, it's my 60 second preview, there's a bit way in there somewhere where I go on a bit of a rant about fan service, and I talk about how nudity in anime, or in any medium actually, but the nudity is not necessarily a sexual thing. The nudity can be used to show innocence. It can be used to show vulnerability. And I think that's actually how it's being used in this scene. There's a lot of sort of innocent and kind of naive things about Rico. And this is also a situation in which she herself is very vulnerable. She had an acute attack of the sort of curse of the abyss sickness. And this helps remind us what a vulnerable state she's in. Moving on from that, inside that same scene, she once again shows her endless optimism about what things can be or mean. I'll talk about the incinerator scene a little more in a moment, but just the fact that she immediately sees the good side or the positive outcomes of things is very in character with what we know about Rico so far. The scene with her cooking the corpse sweeper meat shows that she's kind of very inured to the harsh realities of the abyss. The fact that people are killed and eaten by the creatures of the abyss doesn't horrify her at this point. It's just the background way the abyss works to her. That same scene though reminds us that even though Reg doesn't see himself as an other, Rico still does. He's still in the dog zone as far as she's concerned. As a friend, yes, a companion, yes, but does she see him as another human? Not quite. And then finally, as they are approaching the secret camp, one of her main characteristics is that she lets her curiosity overwhelm her sense of caution. And she's doing it again in this approach and the fact that she hasn't even considered there might be a hostile outcome to talking to Ozen to go into the secret camp. So now I'm going to talk about what's new or evolving for each of them, and then I want to focus on two scenes in this episode that I think are very interesting for their characterizations. We'll talk about it more in a second, but Reg does not exult in the power of the incinerator. He uses it out of a desperate necessity, but is actually kind of horrified at it. He looks down at his hand, and his hand is shaking. He's obviously really stressed out about what he just did. It had come up once before that he is capable of feeling fear, but this is a very different kind of fear, I think. He also has nightmares. He has this little nightmare where he imagines that he's blowing up Rico. I think it's interesting that she looks very robot-like in this scene. No idea what that means. But all this is definitely a bit of a crack in his even keel and confident manner. New characteristic for Rico is simply the idea that she wants to be famous, which I've already talked about, but that's not something I don't think has come up before. And I think it is kind of interesting that she has that kind of fame wish. 
I mean, I think that is very common among young people. I don't recommend any of you chase that down, because fame's kind of a lie, but that is a new sort of complexity to her character. Now, the main scene for characterization in this episode, and the one that gives the episode its title, is this scene where, in his desperation, Reg unleashes his little hand cannon beam thing and obliterates the corpse weepers, and the cliffs, and the chicks, and potentially Rico's notebook, he makes a mess of things. Now there are anime in which this would be a big hero moment, all right? There's a scene with him silhouetted against the awesomeness of his power, and there's Rico falling and him dashing and extending his hand and putting himself into peril, jumping across the chasm. He catches her in a princess carry and comes to a stop. The whole thing's very action movie-esque. But I want you to watch this. I'm gonna turn the music down and I'm not gonna say anything for a minute. Just watch this for a second. Do you hear? There's no music. There's no music. There's no score. There's no triumphant swell or heroic crescendo. It's all very matter of fact. And Reg's immediate reaction is not to exult, to be so happy, to feel confident. It's this crisis of self. It's this existential, oh my God, what have I done? What did I almost do? His power doesn't make him feel powerful. It terrifies him. Like, I'm watching this and I can't imagine what's gonna happen if it turns out Reg has a violent past that he doesn't remember, or that he was built as some sort of weapon. I mean, I can't imagine giving someone that kind of power if they're supposed to, I don't know, be a gardener or something else kind of innocuous. Reg does not like this and he's in crisis for a minute there. But this is another instance of the two of them having a different reaction to the same events because he lets Rico sort of talk him down. She remembers the beam from the first time and, and shows him that, hey, you, you actually could control this in the past. You're capable of making this not a dangerous thing. But I don't think he's fully convinced because a moment later, he's having this terrible nightmare with this sort of nightmarish scene. I mean, once again, listen to this. I mean, that is some horror movie sound effects right there. He is clearly very disturbed by this entire ordeal. The other scene where the two of them have different reactions is when Rico has cooked the corpse weeper's meat and they are consuming it. Areg is clearly squicked out by this. The idea of eating something that only hours before was eating another human really must feel a little too much like cannibalism to him. Rico, though, isn't bothered at all. Or rather, maybe she's not so much not bothered by it as so used to it the thought doesn't even occur to her. She points out that all the meat they have eaten to this point may have arose in a similar situation, and it hasn't bothered her yet, so why would it bother her now? And also, dude, you aren't even human. You don't even go here. Why does it bother you if it doesn't bother me? So they have differing reactions to the eating of this meat, but also the responses are a little bit flip-flopped in the sense that it's the robot who is having the empathetic response, feels like it's borderline cannibalism, whereas the actual human isn't phased at all. Finally, we very briefly have some starting characterization for Ozen. We'll obviously have a lot more of that next episode, but it seems she's not particularly pleased to see Rico and Reg. She refers to Rico as a brat. 
She's grasping Reg's hands with apparently incredible strength, and since the little blue whistle behind the telescope is surprised that she wasn't behind her, we know that walking out there, leaving the post like that, is outside Ozen's normal behavior. So something about Ozen's reaction to Rico is outside her normal operating procedure. Now we're told that she's strong, her strength is superlative, and we get to focus in on her little white whistle, and it's kind of in the shape of a bull. And I wonder then if that means it's a bull because she's strong like bull? Or is she stubborn like bull? If it's the first, then it suggests to me that maybe her strength is actually part of her identity. Like, there's a difference between being the strongest and thinking of yourself as the strongest. Anyway, we'll find out all kinds of things about her next episode, so let's not worry about it too much now. So moving on to world building, when I was talking about the end of last episode in my last episode, I mentioned that the tone they sort of ended on was kind of like giving us a heads up that maybe some bad things were coming. Actually, tell you what, I'll just, I mean, this sort of note of unease that ends on is really intentional. I think they're really helping to brace us for some unfortunate things that are gonna go down. Well, I wasn't expecting those bad things to come immediately. This whole bit with the corpse weeper and eating this corpse raider while imitating its voice is kind of horrifying. Like this episode as a whole, as far as letting us know what's going on in the abyss, was a real escalation of horror. I guess we'll see if the entire tone turns darker and darker as this show goes on, but the corpse weepers and their whole MO is definitely a little bit disturbing. Anyway, other things we learned. Ascending definitely is the thing that causes the curse of the abyss. Hooray, we were right on that. It seems that even this brief sort of ascension that Rico does while she's being carried away is enough to knock her unconscious, make her vomit over herself. Like it's extremely acute and extremely severe. We get to see Reg's little hand cannon come back into the show. It gets the dubious honor of being nicknamed by Rico. But this incinerator is way more power than I think I realized. Like, doesn't it just sort of graze the split jaw in the first episode? Rather than, you know, annihilate half of the landscape? I do think it's interesting that the loss of his memory seems to have affected his loss of control. I mentioned earlier, but this seems very similar to how he had trouble with his extendable arms at first, but then sort of regained mastery over them. Kind of makes me wonder what other things he's got in his bag of tricks, but we'll see. The brief bit with the eating the corpse weeper meat is just a little bit that shows us that hunting was kind of how they got meat, that there isn't any uh, animal husbandry in Orth. And I kind of like this detail because looking at the city, you can tell there are no pastures, there is nowhere you could raise livestock. 99 out of 100 shows, that would be the kind of thing you just gloss over and who cares, you'll bring it up later. The fact that this actually gets brought up and addressed, I think is kind of cool, I, I don't know. You know, effectively building out a fictional world is all about the details, and this is a really cool tiny little detail that they don't even harp on, they just mention it in passing, but it helps explain what would otherwise be a tiny little inconsistency. Um, we do have Rico sort of explaining how the force field directs the beam of light down through the center of the abyss, carrying both light and nutrients. That's kind of vague, but the use of that word suggests to me that our guess that that's the whole reason the force field exists might be on the money. The effect is also apparently strongest in the center of the abyss, which kind of makes sense if the force field is essentially like a giant lens. Probably explains why the next layer is shaped the way it is, but we'll talk about that in a sec. The fact that it's cold where they are, and the fact that they have cold weather gear uh, also plays back into this idea that they need to direct both sunlight and maybe even heat down into the abyss. All this really does is help support this idea that the abyss may be man-made or artificially created. Maybe not man-made, but you know. I do think it's interesting that Reg does not feel cold. I don't think that's come up yet. During the same sequence, when they are sort of approaching Seeker Camp, Rico's explaining the reason for his existence, and part of that is that you can't descend straight from the inverted forest down. Now we go back to Shiggy's map, he describes the third layer as the Great Fault, 
a sheer cliff 4,000 meters down, and it basically looks like a giant granite donut hole. I'm guessing we're gonna be scaling down the sides or something like that, and the secret camp actually makes a sort of base camp, almost like ascending to Everest, except descending. But I do wonder if the shape of that and how deep it goes is because it's meant to offer an unobstructed view of the sunlight and the nutrients and all that coming down from the force field. Speaking of the secret camp, the fact that they have sort of a spotting telescope and a lookout always on duty, and the fact that there's no permanent connection to it, that they need a little gondola to get back and forth, suggests that it's more than just a base camp though, that it's actually a bit of a fortification, that it's a little bit of a lookout post. And I think this just underscores the dangers that exist in the abyss. We've seen lots of creature stuff, but there's also, remember all the foreign cave raiders and, and the other sort of geopolitics that we don't quite have a good grasp of yet. And I think it's a nice detail that you cannot just simply stroll up to the secret camp. There is a brief bit during the montage of them getting to the inverted forest where Rico picks up this sort of relic egg thing from a pile. Reg indicates they can oh, probably only carry one. But I'm pretty sure this is the thing that shows up in the ending credits, the thing I mentioned last time that I didn't recognize. So take note of it. I'm sure it will show up somehow in the future. And finally, we mentioned it already, but Ozen is apparently incredibly strong. This makes me think back to Leader's story about bringing Rico up out of the abyss, and you see two people carrying that relic out. Now we realize that thing really probably was extremely heavy, and there's Ozen basically carrying the entire brunt of it. So theme. Um, I already mentioned we do a little bit of theme housekeeping in the next episode. So let me talk just a little bit about why we need a theme cleanup in the first place. Theme, as I've mentioned before, is very squirrely. You get a sense of what may or may not be important as you go along. But really all you're trying to do is notice patterns, elements, things, actions, characterizations, words that show up frequently, and try to understand if they have some extra meaning, some extra subtext to everything else going on. Theme is much easier to figure out when you stand back and look at a work when it's completed, when you look at the whole thing. You can actually kind of tell where the outlines of the story are, which characters were and weren't important, major plot elements, all kinds of things. It's much easier to look at theme from that top-down view. Trying to figure out thematic elements while you're watching it is a little bit harder. It's kind of like building a jigsaw puzzle starting from the middle. Maybe you're turning over pieces and you notice there's lots of red pieces and you start thinking, oh, red's a theme. Red's gonna be very important. Red's gonna be a critical part of this completed picture. And then when the series is over and you stand back, you may realize that red was just the background color. It actually ends up being the least important part of the whole thing. Any other color would have sufficed. So theme is very difficult to ascertain as it's going on, but I think asking the questions that will eventually lead us to understand the themes are important and interesting to appreciate the kind of things the creators are doing as they spin out their story. That's the whole reason I'm doing as we're going, but it's also why we occasionally need to step back and say, well, maybe this was thematic, maybe this wasn't, maybe this is the actual theme, I don't know, but let's keep going. I feel like the episode with Ozen is either gonna really clarify things for us, or else make a total mess of all the themes we've worked on so far, so it'll be a good time for housekeeping. Because of that, I'm really only gonna go over some sort of new things that I think are gonna be worth considering once we do that sort of housekeeping bit next time. The first is now that we see exactly how acute the Curse of the Abyss symptoms are gonna be, that we understand there really is a sort of point of no return thing going on here, that plunging into the abyss and plumbing its depths is very much a one-way venture for most people. Well, if the abyss ends up standing for some other things, like life, undiscovered truth, 
like some sort of advancement. The idea that you really can't go back to where you came from, that you can't go home again, is strongly, strongly reinforced by this whole Curse of Abyss thing and the way it only happens to you if you try to leave. The second thing comes from the scene where Rico and Reg are eating the Corpse Weeper's meat. Now part of the reason I approach stories with this five-factor thing I do is because I believe all scenes serve one of these points at least. Most good scenes serve a lot of them. And this scene, I think, serves a little bit of characterization, but it might otherwise be a totally unnecessary scene, except that I think it's really serving theme and brings up a thematic element that I hadn't considered yet and we haven't really had a lot of chance to think about. Now I'm paraphrasing here, but Rico basically explains that they've already been eating the meat of creatures that fed on previous cave raiders as they were growing up, which is to say that the strength of those who have raided before, but who fell by the wayside, ended up nourishing other creatures of the abyss, which in turn began nourishing them as they grew up and became cave raiders in their own right. Now I realize there's a real surface kind of circle of life thing going on here. I mean, yes, that's how energy transfer works in biological creatures, but in the sense that each generation can presumably get further into the abyss, understand more about it, this seems like it could be metaphoric for something else entirely. Like say, the fact that scientific advancement requires you to build upon the knowledge of those who came before. That social advancement or technological advancement is often one from the blood of precursors, that the sacrifices and work of one generation allow the following generation to flourish, and on and on. If you think about this in terms of knowledge instead of just physical sustenance, then suddenly I'm beginning to think that maybe that's why Liza's notes coming up and her whistle especially was referred to as a resurrection festival. Like that her presumably dying, going out of the world, and leaving it with her knowledge is in a real sense as though she is being resurrected in that she's fueling the next generation, passing forward what she has learned. She's enabling the next people to go further, go farther, learn more. That Liza is essentially a kind of martyr, not for a religious cause, but a martyr towards the idea of progress towards the advancement of the society. Now again, we're going to attempt to do some cleanup on themes next time, but I have some questions I wanna kinda of start playing with and I might as well let you know what I'm thinking. But isn't it odd that despite the wealth of the abyss, the amount of money it must make for Orth, the technological advancements that must come up out of it, that despite all that, the city seems very desperate, kind of harsh? I mean, there's the whole bit with the wharf district and the toxins and the number of orphans running around and never even living long enough to grow up. There's a somewhat authoritarian regime putting Cave Raider's life in danger, including Rico when she was unborn. The obvious greed of some of the people running the orphanage and in the guild. The danger they put the children in. The hostility we're apparently gonna get from Ozen. I mean, I think Habo and Rico's very positive and hopeful take on the whole abyss may be the exception to the rule, but, but why? Shouldn't the abyss be sort of a, a source of uplifting this whole society? Shouldn't this be like happy and prosperous and safe? I mean, Orth seems to have a lot of darkness. Rico and the other children have a real pragmatic, no-nonsense view of life and death. I'm not sure I can attribute that entirely to the danger of the abyss itself. I mean, is this supposed to be a lesson on greed? About the destructive side of ambition? The danger inherent in certain curiosity or the pursuit of knowledge or the unknown? I don't know what exactly yet, but I feel like something's going on here. So what to watch for? Well, obviously next time, Ozen, everything she's gonna say. I strongly suspect we may have a little bit of mirroring of the story that Leader told 
way back during the Resurrection Festival. And whereas he was spinning out the sort of hopeful, romanticized version of Liza, it may be we get Ozen spinning out a story that does the opposite. So how Ozen treats Rico, the kind of thing she says to her about Liza, is gonna help us understand Liza, but it's also gonna help us understand Ozen and probably the entire guild structure because of them both being white whistles. Something I wanna watch for is, how did Ozen know that Rico and Reg were coming? Like it's clear from her little bit here that she's expecting them, so how does she know? Is there some sort of communication with the surface, uh, some two-way way of communicating that we're not aware of yet? Like we've seen male balloons ascending, but obviously that wouldn't work going down. Is there some sort of relic-based communication? Is there a network of informants? I, I don't know, I, I do wanna know though, how does she know? Who told her, I guess, is part of what I wanna know also. We're gonna be watching to see what the little egg-shaped relic will do. I know it was super brief, but I've already pointed out that's in the ending credits, so you know it'll show up again, even if just for a second. And I also think we're gonna be watching for Reg to perhaps have some more surprises. I didn't bring it up already, but there's a moment where he has this symbol show up on his helmet, and it's not clear what triggered that or what it means, but we're gonna be watching to find out when it happens again, what the context is for that, and maybe we can start to discern it. And then what I think is probably gonna be most important, we're gonna watch to see how Rico or Reg change in their goals after the encounter with Ozen. I can't help but feel like we're gonna learn something really important here about the Abyss, about Liza, about the Guild, and it may alter our course a little bit. So we're gonna be watching to see how they react. I just can't imagine they're gonna come out exactly the same on the other side. And now for more speculation. Like I mentioned at the beginning, I am not caught up to the series. I am watching these, making my videos, doing my speculation, then going on to the next one. So I'm sure I'm wrong about a lot of this. Hilariously, a lot of you know that I'm wrong or right. That said, even if you already know what's gonna happen, I hope it's at least interesting or instructive to watch someone try to speculate honestly as they go. And I'm trying to demonstrate why I'm guessing the things that I'm guessing may happen. Even if I'm wrong, that's probably not totally a pointless exercise. So the bit showing Rico getting very sick, passing out due to the rapid ascension of the uh, Corpse Weeper, is mirrored in that scene by Reg passing out after he uses Incinerator. That was a fantastic bit of subtle storytelling where the time elapsed between Rico passing out and her waking up is obviously not too long because everything's kind of still on fire, but the time gap between Reg passing out and waking up is obviously much longer because everything's burnt down to cinders. Remember before, back in the first episode, he uses his beam and passes out apparently immediately. It's another day or so before he wakes up, and even then it was because he was shocked awake rather rudely. So Reg has a thing he can do to try to save people, but it puts him in peril afterwards, and Rico, ascending rapidly, can do the same thing. So both of them now have this way that in the future, they may have to make a choice to save somebody else to do something that they know will put themselves in immediate peril. And I'm willing to bet that they're gonna make that choice, that that's the type of characters they are, and this is a way of showing us what those consequences will be ahead of time. So I actually don't want to speculate about what the content of the scene with Ozen will be. I'm super curious. I think this is going to be really important to understanding the show as a whole. But I've made a few guesses before and I just don't want to try to overrun that now. I think it's better that we just go on to it. Um, I'm, I've already predicted that it's going to be a big change potentially in goals, maybe even characterization for Rico and or Reg. I think that's all I really want to say about that. So instead, I'm going to speculate about Reg's um, biological accuracy. There's a bit when Rico's bemoaning the loss of her notebook and Reg is relieved that it's lost. And I'm wondering to myself, why are we still dwelling on Reg's man bits? Like, I thought it was just kind of a bit of humor at first, but it's come up so often, I'm starting to think it's gonna be important. 
Now, why would that be important? I mean, does it mean that he is actually capable of reproduction? And if so, why is that important? Is he actually some created being? Or are we actually looking at a race of people that are kind of relics or essentially cyborgs? That they actually reproduce and are not made? Or is he robotic parts grafted onto what was a living person? Like a whole host of storylines kind of spin out in my mind here, like was there a whole race of cyborgs that overthrew their masters and banished them out of the abyss? And that's what the curse of the abyss is. It's to, to keep humans out. But humanity on the outside of this was never as advanced again. So now they're coming back because they have all the tech. I don't know. I'm not actually predicting that's the case, but certainly gets my mind thinking. Like this has come up too much should just be a joke, I think. Basically, I don't know what it means, but I'm guessing at this point it means something. Finally, and this may be way down the line, but I'm gonna guess that something about Reg's past that he doesn't remember will actually be upsetting to his current self. That whatever his unknown goal was, or maybe whatever he was before he had that, is inconsistent with the Reg that we know now. Just my guess, maybe way off, but the whole bit with the incinerator and the internal crisis he suffers was really well done. They paid a lot of attention to that. So I feel like that's the kind of thing we may visit again because it has a lot of nice emotional weight, would be a nice narrative surprise. It may cause a choice to be made between him and Rico. I just think there's a lot of potential to that kind of storytelling, so it would not surprise me at all if that ends up being the case. Okay, that's it. That's the short look. It's still not short, but it is shorter, I hope. Next time we'll deal a little bit more with theme. We're gonna dig into this whole scene with Ozen. I'm really excited about it, so I'm gonna hurry up and finish editing this so I can watch that scene myself. Uh, See you next time. Title music by Russell J. Crowe. Other music licensed from the artists at Audio Jungle. Script, performance, and editing by Theta. Theta is played by Redacted. Original video can be found at youtube.com slash C slash Nearly on Red. And a full list of credits is available at nearlyonred.com. Until next time, thanks for everything.